This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Schreiber, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love It podcast. This is our fourth and final episode on this um, little book of constant surprises. Um, <laughs> we have uh, talked about turns of phrases and irony and the colors and more irony and motifs of the eyes and water and baptism and irony and dust and cars and references to time and did i mention irony <laughs> so you think fitzgerald uses a lot of irony <laughs> things just aren't what they pretend or appear to right. be <laughs> i think i want to point out he uses a lot of irony it goes on and on and uh, last week we also uh, talked about how uh, tightly constructed and deliberate everything is uh, someone even used the word geometric describing it. It's basically everything fits together. And uh, I also can see why you call it poetry because the phrases are um, sometimes strange, but they're enjoyable to read. And you'll love this, Christy. Uh, I'm not sure how it all went down, but a lot of Fitzgerald's metaphors were lifted right out of Zelda's letters. She was the metaphor master maker of the family, it seems. Well, of course, I know that. <laughs> read that stuff too but i don't think she was very salty about you know him using her line she saw it i think more as a collaboration than plagiarism i don't know at this point i don't guess it matters but uh the metaphors they really are endless and they're really delightful and a lot of them just kind of make me smile i don't even understand what they mean uh like when he says things like then he kissed her and his lips touch she blossomed for him like a flower, and the incarnation was complete. The incarnation, <laughs> okay. I mean, you really can't visualize something like that very easily, and so you're a little confused when he's describing this godlike event of creating Gatsby, because Gatsby becomes a vulnerable man when he falls for. Daisy, maybe the same way Fitzgerald fell for Zelda. I don't know. You can make a metaphor out of it. But it's definitely there, and it's lovely. 
Um, actually, there is neuroscience about that. And uh, next week, we will talk about T.S. Eliot. And we should talk a, a little about the neuroscience, about why some words are just fun to listen to. I mean, that's worth geeking out a little on. And uh, Eliot is kind of like that, too. Well, I think it's a good idea. He certainly is. And I look forward to getting into the little neuroscience. I don't know much about that. But this week, we don't have time because we have to recklessly fly with Daisy and watch her turn Gatsby's cream-colored circus wagon into a death car. There is a lot to say, and we're going to skip over tons of stuff because I can't hit everything. Uh, But you will be happy to know, Gary, that we will end with a little bit of history, another reference to the American dream. But this time it is not the dream according to Thomas Jefferson. Instead, it's according to Benjamin Franklin. Well, that explains your change (laughs) attitude because I know for a fact you have a crush on Benjamin Franklin. I know. He's my favorite founding father. And one of these days I'd love to do a series on his autobiography. But until then, we'll just reference him like we do today. Last episode, we delved into the life and times of the young Daisy Faye, who I affectionately called and still call the Ice Queen. We talked about her relationship to Gatsby, and I made the case that there is a sense in that Daisy and Gatsby are basically doppelgangers of each other. One is the male version, and the other is the female of the same version. We talked about their connection in Louisville, their dreams, but how the different circumstances of their lives and their choices have put them onto separate paths, and five years later, they're in different places. Even if they physically are just across the bay from each other. (laughs) Even so. But today, I want to start with a focus on Gatsby's origin story. Um, Before we do that, let's remember, though, that this is not just a book about Gatsby. It's about two men. And we started episode one with that idea. Although it's called The Great Gatsby, some say he's not really the primary character at all. And while last week we compared Daisy to Gatsby, this week I want to talk about Gatsby as he compares to Nick. Because both of them are searchers. They're looking for something. They're both from the Middle West. One is going to achieve awareness and is going to kind of wake up. You have this epiphany thing going on. And the other one, not so much. This is a story about Nick. He's the character that we should identify with. However, Nick's role in the story is really interesting. And I almost think of it as two people. There's Persona 1, or Nick 1, who's telling the story as this detached historian, talking about something that happened to him two summers ago, his New York summer that kind of changed the way he sees the world. It's reflective. And he tells this story from the safety of the Middle West. But then there's Nick, too, the participant of the story. He's the star-struck 29-year-old who's bored with life back home. He's enchanted with the East, with the possibilities that New York offers. He wants the fast life. He wants the modern world. He wants a little bit of that non-olfactory money they hand out in Manhattan. He just doesn't know that it soon is going to turn into an El Greco painting. (laughs) 
Oh, Greco. Well, uh, you know, both of those references at the end are very strange. I remember the first time I, I really even thought anything about El Greco's art. Um, although I'm pretty sure I heard of it before, but it was when uh, I was taking a group of students to Toledo, Spain, and our tour guide showed us some of his work, and it's really unusual stuff. It's very dark and disturbing. I know. I think that's how Nick feels about what happened in New York. That's what happened today is going to be dark and certainly disturbing. And the same thing goes for that non-olfactory. I have a hard time saying that word. Olfactory money. (laughs) It's a great metaphor. Olfactory. Olfactory. Non-smelling money. Money that doesn't smell. Yes. That's the word that like no one ever says. But interestingly enough, I think Nick thinks it does smell by the end of the story and uh the summer concludes uh with him deciding he's the only person he knows and there is something worth valuing back home in a world where the trains return there's holly wreaths on doors there's family members in the area nick decides that he finds a world like that just to be more honest when he says he's the only person well, the only honest person that he knows, I think that's the sense that he wants to say. I think we would say, I'm the most real person that I know, really is how I, I think of it. It's certainly not true that he lives a life without lies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he lies all the time, especially about these women, but not just that. The Nick that goes east doesn't seem to value the social contract you're always going on about, Gary. My fav- <laughs> one of my favorite topics. He wants to jump into a world where you don't have to have a social contract that other people do, but not you. You're above the rules. You're outside the community standards that everyone else has agreed to submit to. If you're rich, you don't have to wait your turn or play by the same rules that's the thrill you get to wave the white card at the cop and drive as however fast you want to go however when nick finds in this lifestyle in the east is something that he doesn't want to stay with and and he doesn't want to inhabit that kind of a world well i think that's a very common experience for a lot of young adults Uh, you don't have to be nick from the middle west If you're young, there's something seductive about leaving the interior and going to the coast, whether it's the east or west. And I guess depending on where you live, and uh, thousands of students dream of the NBA and Hollywood and the rap music scene, YouTube contracts, and you know, million follower TikTok accounts where you're a beauty influencer. <laughs> Is that what you want to be a beauty influencer? I don't think I have a chance. <laughs> Uh, but that, that's just a missing a few things. But in all these cases, the job may be fun. Uh, the appeal isn't in the sport. I mean, there's this vision of limitless power, the, the buying of privilege and never being told no and absolute freedom from any control. I know. And it's nice. I mean, so many of us wait for the train, the bus, the plane, just to have all the people go right by you into the first class car or you're in line for the concert and the VIPs get to walk past you and they go into the glass box. And isn't that what money buys? I mean, can't money buy everything? What's that famous phrase? I've heard you say it. The rocker about money can't buy happiness, but it can buy the... (laughs) It's David Lee Roth of Van Halen. One time in an interview, someone asked him, uh, is money really able to buy happiness? And he said, no, money can't buy happiness, but it'll sure allow me to buy that yacht to pull up right beside happiness and get out and step (laughs) over it. Okay, well, 
That's the idea. (laughs) (laughs) But there's a big difference between Nick and Gatsby. Nick's highest motivation isn't really money or love, and maybe that's kind of what saves him from the toxicity that's going to get Gatsby. When Nick returns home at the end of the book, he doesn't want to recreate a past childhood that he loved so much. He's not really homesick, and he's not returning because he just can't cut it in life in the East. He's returning, but he's decided he's a different person. He makes it, he says it in this way, that he's grown up. During the climactic scene, Daisy tells Gatsby that she loves Tom, and Tom exposes Gatsby's mob connections. And then Nick says, hmm, I just remembered I'm turning 30. (laughs) (laughs) A little non sequitur there. Well, it is, but it isn't, because he's growing up. That's the idea. Oh, so are are we saying uh, that that is the age in which we grow up? 30, (laughs) written by a man who wasn't 30? (laughs) When he wrote it, uh, although he almost was, uh, is growing up what happens when we turn 30? Uh, I think that's a, something like that exactly from young Fitzgerald's From somebody perspective. who's not 30, that's their perspective. <laughs> something about not being naive anymore. There's a bit of irony for you. Uh, he sees the East with all of its glamorous trappings shallow, or at least artificial, Nick does. And Nick realizes when he looks at all these people in this hot Manhattan room, that the person that he admires more than any of them, including his cousin, is indisputably the one that's a obvious fraud, hoodlum, murderer, thug, whose values are openly morally bankrupt. I mean, at one point, Nick looks at Gatsby, and he absolutely says, I can see how he could have killed somebody, but even still, he's the best one of the whole lot. <laughs> Well, it turns out that Gatsby isn't the only murderer either. More irony, he isn't. And at the wise old age of 32, Nick, two years later, reflecting on his strange neighbor who lived in a recreated French hotel, is able to really make some judgments. And this book is absolutely his declaration of all the judgments that he got in his growing up summer. I thought he said he was not very judgmental in the very beginning. Well, it's not didactic or moralistic. Uh, uh, Jay Gatsby was indeed a lot of bad things, and Nick disdains him for all those things. However, Nick's had time to think about the world that created that person and the kind of person the world rewards who wins who's destroyed and what's destroying people the book clearly has three victims gatsby myrtle and wilson but only one of them he calls great (laughs) well there's one way to to look at the book and say these three were not a part of the system or the privileged class uh that's what killed them it was the establishment I mean, the system was always rigged. Tom was never going to sell his car and never marry Myrtle, nor was Gatsby ever going to get a good girl. I mean, they were never going to win. Well, you could see it that way. Lots of people have, and that's an easy answer. But my experience with good literature is that the simplistic easy answer is usually wrong. So no Occam's <laughs> razor here. The obvious problem is that there are many counterexamples uh, of rags to riches stories. I mean, you can't say that doesn't happen. I mean, Nick's family in the story kind of built wealth the old-fashioned way. Fitzgerald's more nuanced argument is different, and it's going to claim something about this dream of success, wealth, love, 
happiness. It's just not really about accumulating cash, although I want to test that personally. (laughs) (laughs) One thing to notice in Nick, especially in the final scenes of the story, is a recognition, and this is unusual when you think about the kind of book that this is, uh, that money or success, if it's worth having, has to have a moral or a civic component, if not both. And if you take away the moral or civic component out of money, then what you have is fraudulent. It's shallow. It's a value system that's different than the Benjamin Franklin American dream success story that's defined by hard work and civic responsibility. This system that we see in this story is devoid of loyalty. And when you don't have any of that, it's harmful, not just to other people, but to you. James Gatz traded in, we see that, finishing up a college degree at the Lutheran University of St. Olaf because he had to work as a janitor. He wanted something easier, likely more fun, a path to success that doesn't penalize the corrupt. <laughs> a non-olfactory money a path. non-olfactory <laughs> path. Well, Daisy really kind of did the same thing when she married Tom, but uh, how does that happen? Well, in the case of James Gatz of rural North Dakota, success happens by sheer force of will. What we know about Gatsby is interesting, and it comes in parts. In Chapter 6, future Nick the Historian breaks the chronology of the summer to give us Gatsby's personal history. We get the rest of what we know about him when we meet his dad in Chapter 9. I'd like to put the whole story together because, Christy, I think you will be interested in this historical (laughs) angle. The historical angle. Please do. Well, at the uh, end of the book, when Mr. Gatz talks about James's growing up years, he references a book he found called Hopalong Cassidy. And inside the cover, uh, James had handwritten a schedule for himself. And now, what's so historically interesting about the schedules is that it's recognizable. American history teachers will tell you what he writes is a list that is recognizably modeled after Benjamin Franklin's Guide to Moral Perfection as recorded in his uh, autobiography. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, by the way, is one of America's original American dream stories, although there are millions that have followed his footsteps all over this country. I mean, uh, Franklin was the 15th child oh dear! in a Boston family of 17 children. There was no money. There was no East Egg. Uh, so much so that uh, Franklin became legally bound as an apprentice to his brother as a printer. And uh, he worked his rear end off to learn his trade. And he was great at his job. And his brother was making a lot of money off of Franklin's work. And uh, Franklin believed his brother was really just exploiting him. So he ran away, which at that time was actually a crime. Um, he had uh, legally bound himself to his brother, kind of like an indentured servant. And the minute Franklin ran, he literally became an outlaw. And, uh, he could have been arrested by any person who wanted to collect the ransom and been sent back to Boston to work for his brother. So he fled to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, an up-and-coming town. Uh, And lots happened, but eventually uh, he started a business and he created a very successful periodical called Poor Richard's Almanac. (laughs) One of the most famous things ever published in this country. Uh, He sold tens of thousands of copies, which is impressive because uh, he was in a town of 12,000 people. Uh, obviously, it went viral across not just Philadelphia, but um, almanacs were 
the second most read book in the United States after the Bible. And apparently his was really funny. And all of a sudden he was a celebrity and he was rich and he would be rich for the rest of his life. And uh, he printed a new almanac every year for 25 years. And it was full of quotes that are still famous this day. Things like, here's a good one. Early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. <laughs> so Franklin, by the end of his life, had uh, met the kings and queens of Europe and owned property, started businesses, established um, public institutions like the post office and the library. And he did all kinds of things, and lots of those things are still around. And um, so, so what's anyway, the connection to Gatsby? Well, <laughs> I'm going around the barn to get there. Okay. Well, uh, Franklin had this plan for moral perfection. It's famous, and lots of people are familiar with it, and they try to follow it and uh, and have since he first wrote it. James Gatz's plan for perfection is obviously a modification of Franklin's famous list. Huh. For example, uh, Franklin's original list says, Tolerate no uncleanness in the body, clothes, or habitation. And Gatz's list says, Bathe every other day. <laughs> a compromise. Yeah, well, Franklin's list says, lose no time, be always employed in something useful, cut off all unnecessary actions. Gatz's is, no wasting time at chapters or so-and-so's name, which is undecipherable, but uh, what becomes obvious as you go down the list is Franklin's list, you can compare it to Gatz's list, and uh, Gatz deletes everything that has to do with morality or civic responsibility. It's a, huh. it's a glaring omission. Um what Fitzgerald is suggesting is that by the time we get to the 20th century, we still pursue dreams in America, and we still wish upon stars. Uh, but, <laughs> Disney. Yeah, but there is a large number of people that have disconnected success uh, with our personal morality or community responsibility and or loyalty of any kind except to oneself. And so what does that get you? Well, it gets you a ride on a yacht. Okay. <laughs> James Gad sees his opportunity and crosses the water. A man named Dan Cody floats by on a yacht on Lake Superior. Gatsby has been loafing on the beach all day, so much for waste no time. Yes. <laughs> he borrows a rowboat, crosses the water, and Fitzgerald puts it like this. The truth was that Jay Gatsby of West Eglon Island sprang from his platonic conception of himself. He was a son of God, a phrase which, if it meant anything, means just that. And he must be about his father's business, the service of a vast, vulgar, and meretricious beauty. So he invented just the sort of Jay Gatsby that a 17-year-old boy would be likely to invent. And to this conception, he was faithful to the end. Wow. Listen to this language. But his heart was in a constant, turbulent riot. The most grotesque and fantastic conceits haunted him in his bed at night. A universe of effable gaudiness spun itself out in his brain while the clock ticked on the washstand and the moon soaked with wet light, his tangled clothes upon the floor. Each night he added to the pattern of his fancies until drowsiness closed down upon some vivid scene from an oblivious embrace. For a while, these reveries provided an outlet for his imagination. They were a satisfactory hint of the unreality of reality, a promise that the rock of the world was founded securely on a fairy's wing. Hmm. Well, let's not uh, discount this idea of remaking your identity. I mean, uh, into whatever you want. Uh, that is also totally American. 
Um, and so often it, it's a good thing for a lot of reasons. I mean, how many immigrants come to this country with nothing but the shirt on their backs and one generation, one generation later they own businesses or they've built wealth and or their children are college graduates and uh, they invest in their communities and it quite literally has what made this country great. And there are a lot of great countries, but America is unique in that money uh, can come easier here compared to other parts of the world, as you would know. So true. That's really not contested. I mean, uh, it's not a guarantee, and there certainly are barriers, but it's been the story of many people from every corner of the globe. I will never forget my first teaching job uh, 300 years ago, (laughs) or however long it was. Uh, we had a, a young student um, who had come to our school, and uh, he was Cambodian, and he became the valedictorian of the senior class after he had escaped the Pol Pot regime in the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia by swimming in, with him and his family in the South China Sea. I mean, he had literally come here on a boat after he swam to it. So, uh, But that's not Gatsby's story. No, I think that's also the plot of the cartoon, The American Tale, about Five Mouskovich, the mouse from Russia. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, Gatsby's model is Dan Cody, Christy. I'm doing a little name symbolism myself oh, here. Oh, are you going to get literary? Yeah, well, not really. I mean, it, it's easy. It comes from two American heroes, Daniel Boone and Buffalo Bill Cody. Good old Daniel Boone, the famous frontiersman. You know, my mom graduated from Boone's Creek High School. You know, Daniel Boone killed a bar on a tree in 1760 and carved those words in a tree up in Washington County, Tennessee, where my mama from. Again, (laughs) you and the accents. I mean, uh, anyway, I did not know you had such a close brush with uh, with frontier frame. I I should get a hat. (laughs) He uh, he was famous, but there's also a lot of folklore about him that who knows if any of it's true. I mean, he was kind of a showman, as was Buffalo Bill, and uh, traveled the world literally with his Buffalo Bill Wild West show, pretending to be a cowboy, and they both were kind of mythical creations. Well, that's true, and I also want to point out that if you listen to the language, it's obviously biblical. Gatsby is on the fishing shore like Jesus. He founds his life on the rock like St. Peter. But it's very sacrilegious. When Gatsby learns from Dan Cody is that the rules are not fair, but the show is important. The legend is more important than the substance. They spend five years on that yacht together, and he learns all about the show and all about wealth. He builds the myth until Ella Kay... I think she murders Dan Cody, although it's Mm. a little bit ambiguous, but she definitely steals the $25,000 that Cody had left for Gatsby in his will. Gatsby walks away from his experience with Dan Cody with nothing. He's been bested by the establishment girl who knew how to manipulate the rules. Next thing we know about Gatsby, he's a soldier meeting Daisy, the first nice girl he has ever seen. And the text says... He took her. There's your polite euphemism. Hmm. But he takes her under false pretenses. And afterwards, she vanished into her rich house, into her rich full life, leaving Gatsby nothing. He goes to Europe, fights in the war, studies a little at Oxford, gets a medal from Montenegro, comes back to Louisville while Tom and Daisy are still on their wedding trip and he is Penniless. 
takes a job working for the mob, dot, 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 chapter six, <laughs> second party. Now Tom and Daisy are both in his house. Daisy, as much as she pretends to like it, kind of finds it vulgar. And at the end of the night, Nick says this. Gatsby wanted nothing less of Daisy than that she should go to Tom and say, I never loved you. After she had obliterated three years with that sentence, they could decide upon the more practical measures to be taken. One of them was that after she was free, they were to go back to Louisville and be married from her house, just as if it were five years ago. And she doesn't understand, he said despairingly. She used to understand. We'd sit for hours. He broke off and began to walk up and down a desolate path of fruit rinds and discarded favors and crushed flowers. Now, I want to point out the flowers are now crushed. When they were at Nick's house meeting, there were lots of blooming, non-broken <laughs> flowers. But he continues and he says this. This is what Nick says. I wouldn't ask too much of her. You can't repeat the past. You can't repeat the past, he cried incredulously. Why, of course you can. He looked around wildly as if the past were lurking. Well, there it is. Do you think that if uh, Gatsby had not attached his vision of himself to Daisy that he would have lived? Yeah, I totally do. That would have been the far more sensible thing to do. But then he wouldn't be Gatsby, <laughs> the man who won't let the childhood dream die. Gatsby, at this point in his life, should have been disillusioned. I mean, he'd had opportunities. He'd gone through the rottenness of the whole Dan Cody fiasco. He definitely survived the rottenness of World War I that depressed the world. His young love crush married the rich boy, and yet he persists in this dream of whatever Daisy represents for him. For five long years, he's amassing money at any cost, building a love in his mind and a lover that he has totally created separate from the actual person of Daisy. This is not your normal love story. The traditional route is something like someone marries for money or they marry for love and give up money. Gatsby accumulates money to purchase love, a vision of himself who he believes Daisy represents, which he can clearly see, or we can clearly see, is definitely not anything like the actual Daisy we know. But Gatsby never questions his quest. It's fantastic and absurd and wild, and I really don't know what's fueling the passion. Well, that is the greatness of Gatsby, from which we get the title, The Dream. It is. And I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but not by much. When Daisy, the real Daisy, not the imagined Daisy in his head, the real Daisy absolutely betrays Gatsby in the worst way humanly possible. I mean, she literally murders someone, then lets him take the blame. Not even that will make him let go of his dream. He just stands under her window and then by the phone. And at this point, it's sad. It's obviously pathetic. It's such a contrast to the moment that he falls in love with Daisy in this scene. And I do want to read this scene when he falls in love with her because you'll see what I mean when now it's pathetic. One autumn night, five years before, they had been walking down the street when the leaves were falling and they came to a place where there were no trees and the sidewalk was white with moonlight. They stopped here and turned toward each other. Now it was a cool night 
with that mysterious excitement in it which comes at the two changes of the year. The quiet lights in the houses were humming out into the darkness, and there was a stir and bustle among the stars. Out of the corner of his eye, Gatsby saw that the blocks of the sidewalks really formed a ladder and mounted to a secret place above the trees. He could climb to it. If he climbed alone and once, and he could suck on the pap of life, gulped down the incomparable milk of wonder. His heart beat faster and faster as Daisy's white face came up to his own. He knew that when he kissed this girl and forever wed his unutterable vision to her perishable breath, his mind would never romp again like the mind of God. So he waited listening for a moment longer to the tuning fork that had been struck upon a star. Then he kissed her. At his lips touched, she blossomed for him like a flower, and the incarnation was complete. I know I've read it <laughs> twice, but it's beauty. It's divinity. It's also impossible. <laughs> oh, there's a buzzkill. Uh, I think it's important uh, to consider that if a real relationship were ever going to exist between Daisy and Gatsby, she was going to have to become a real person. And that is not a, a small thing. I mean, Gatsby uh, enters into Daisy's real house, and she kisses him, tells him she loves him. Then the nurse brings in her daughter, Pammy, the one that she has with Tom. I found that detail interesting because uh, life doesn't get more real than a child. But Nick points out that uh, Gatsby looks at the child with surprise, kind of never believing before that she had existed. Um, in other words, he is now going to have to obliterate the existence of Pammy because Pammy is half Tom and half Daisy. Difficult. <laughs> yes, very unrealistic. <laughs> well, and that's just the beginning. Things are going to go downhill really fast. Uh, but before they do, we can't skip what is probably the most famous line in the whole book. Gatsby and Nick are talking about Daisy. And Gatsby makes his famous observation. Mate said, tell us the line. Her voice is full of money. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting thing to say. And Daisy's charm is connected to the uh, attraction of wealth and money and love, all three of which can hold uh, similar attractions. And, uh, and this is where Daisy and Gatsby are, in fact, very similar. Gatsby has a large capacity to love, it seems, but the pursuit of money is a substitute for that, or at least it's meshed with that. What do you mean? Well, um, we can see it in how Tom and Gatsby look at money, and maybe it's the difference between the way you and I look at money and how people who just have endless loads of money look at it. And You know, when Tom buys a car or, or a house or a horse, he's buying just the material possession itself. And um, the abstract benefits of having money, he already has that. He already has the power and the position and the connections and the opportunity. And uh, he doesn't even know a world without those things. But that's not Gatsby, and it's not most of us. When Gatsby amasses wealth, he's not just buying a house or a car or a hydroplane. He's buying a dream. He's buying a purpose. He's buying a ticket inside a world that he can't access. And um, Gatsby, like all of us, really doesn't know what money can and can't buy. And, he doesn't know the limits of money. He doesn't know what that there are different kinds of money, that money earned peddling liquor out of pharmacies won't buy the same things that Tom's money buys, like a nice girl like Daisy. <laughs> nice girl. You know, there's a famous line that Ernest Hemingway said that Fitzgerald said, even though Fitzgerald made it up to kind of slam Hemingway. He says this. He, he had a conversation with Fitzgerald and uh 
Fitzgerald said to him, you know, the rich are different than you and me. Uh, to which Hemingway says, they have more money. <laughs> Coming from two authors who were very wealthy from Ryan. Yes. Well, that conversation, um, you know, although something Hemingway made up to make fun of Fitzgerald for being so enamored of his money, it's still interesting. And Fitzgerald's criticism of America does seem to rest on the irresponsibility of those people with money and the and the, the power to shape the world. And um, Fitzgerald sees corruption, and it's symbolized with whatever he seems to be describing when he talks about Manhattan. Uh, in this book, Manhattan is amoral. It's non-olfactory money, as you like. Uh, money with no morality attached to it and uh, not good, not bad, just money. And maybe that's true for Manhattan. Maybe it isn't. But Manhattan is just a big city in the story. But removing uh, money from money, a moral position, what does that do? And in a world of amorality, who's going to win? In this case, there's no doubt that Tom wins and Gatsby loses. And if Gatsby hadn't gotten involved emotionally with Daisy, uh, that wouldn't have been the case. True. So let's get into the cars and ride into that amoral Manhattan with our five stars. <laughs> Not to insult people who currently live there. Right? Oh, no. Um, I, I do want to point out a couple of things about cars. I mean, cars are huge in the 1920s, literally and figuratively, okay? Buying cars had just really been made possible a decade or so earlier because um, Henry Ford had perfected the assembly line and turning out Ford motor cars that the masses could buy. And uh, because of this buying, even used cars had started to become a thing. And uh, notice that Daisy had a car as a teenager, and that would have been extremely uncommon. Uh, but noticing people's cars would have been more important than it is today. I mean, it's it was a sign of your status, especially if they were new. And um, I also want to point out that the car that is described as being Gatsby car absolutely does not exist as Fitzgerald describes it. He describes it as this um, rich cream color, bright with nickel, swollen here and there in its monstrous link with triumphant hat boxes and super boxes and tool boxes and terraced with a labyrinth of windshields that mirrored a dozen suns. <laughs> I mean, really, that doesn't describe our car, but uh, and there's really no uh, such car that actually looks like that. And so we kind of have to make it up on our heads. But anyway, it's something to think about. True. And we hit on this a couple of episodes ago when we mentioned that the cars symbolically represent the drivers who drove them and pay attention to the way that they drive because it represents how they're living their lives. And look at this scene. It's all about the cars. Uh, Tom figures out that Daisy and Gadsby are having an affair. He very hypocritically, I may add, loses his mind, to borrow Fitzgerald's phrase, the transformation from libertine to prig was about to be complete. <laughs> Ooh, that's quick. Yes. But his reaction is to swap cars. He's going to let Gatsby drive his car to town in a way saying, okay, fine, you can live my life for about five minutes. But on their drive in the switch cars, they stop. he stops at Wilson's only for Wilson to tell him that basically he's figured out his wife is having an affair and for T-Day, Jay Eckelberg and Myrtle to kind of watch the whole thing. Mm. When they get to the hotel in the heat of the afternoon, and the heat is just everywhere, there's a confrontation. Gatsby finds out what money can and cannot buy when Daisy is confronted with the reality that Gatsby is basically just a common gangster. It's over. 
when Tom realizes that Daisy is not going to leave him and that he has successfully alpha-mailed Gatsby, he tells Daisy to get into Gatsby's car as a way to kind of dominate Gatsby. And Gatsby is going to return Daisy to Tom's house, return the golden girl to the shelf. A little symbolic, <laughs> huh? 1,000%. Well, but of course, we never see Daisy get behind the wheel of Gatsby's car. What we know is what Gatsby tells Nick. He says that she was very nervous and she thought it would steady her to drive. Yeah, I don't know how that works, but read that part. And this woman rushed out at us just as we were passing a car coming the other way. It all happened in a minute, but it seemed to me that she wanted to speak to us, thought we were somebody she knew. We, first Daisy, turned away from the woman toward the other car, and then she lost her nerve and turned back. The second my hand reached the wheel, I felt the shock. It must have killed her instantly. It ripped her open. Don't tell me, old sport, he winced. Anyway, Daisy stepped on it. I tried to make her stop, but she couldn't, so I pulled the emergency brake. Then she fell over into my lap, and I drove on. She'll be all right tomorrow. I'm just going to wait here and see if he tries to bother her about that unpleasantness this afternoon. Unpleasantness. Mm. (laughs) Well, you can see that the Ice Queen is not careless. She was deliberately destructive. She absolutely hits Myrtle intentionally and doesn't even stop to see if she's dead. This will lead to two other deaths. For the rest of the book, Gatsby's car is no longer a cream-colored car that combines the white and gold, innocent and wealth, but it's the death car. And another point to make, when they all get back to the house, Jordan wants to go hang out. It's only 9.30, and Tom and Daisy plot while eating cold chicken. (laughs) (laughs) They're just all callous, indifferent, cold. And the final time Nick sees Gatsby, he has decided that Gatsby is better than everyone else in the story, and he's proud of the fact that he tells him so. On the day of Gatsby's death, Gatsby puts on his swimsuit and gets on an air mattress in the swimming pool for his final baptism. He still believes Daisy will call. And let's read the passage, the last couple paragraphs that describes his death. The chauffeur, he was one of Wolfsheim's protégés heard the shots. Afterward, he could only say that he hadn't thought anything much about them. I drove from the station directly to Gatsby's house, and my rushing anxiously up the front steps was the first thing that alarmed anyone. But they knew then, I firmly believe. With scarcely a word said, four of us, the chauffeur, butler, gardener, and I hurried down to the pool. There was a faint, barely perceptible movement of the water as a fresh flow from one end urged its way around the drain at the other. With little ripples that were hardly the shadows of waves, the laden mattress moved irregularly down the pool. A small gust of wind that scarcely corrugated the surface was enough to disturb its accidental course with its accidental burden. The touch of a cluster of leaves revolved it slowly, tracing, like the leg of a compass, a thin red circle in the water. It was after we started with Gatsby toward the house that the gardener saw Wilson's body a little way off in the grass, and the Holocaust was complete. Now, remember, he's using that word Holocaust before the Holocaust in Europe, so that word doesn't have the emotional content that it really does for us, but uh, it's also true for the reference to uh, the swastika. (laughs) 
that has nothing to do with Hitler at that time period. I mean, a Holocaust is a slaughter on a mass scale, usually caused by fire. Well, two of the people who died, Myrtle and Wilson, already lived in the Valley of Ashes. But we could go on about all that symbolism, but we don't really have time. You can think about this stuff pretty much forever. But I want to jump to the funeral and really get to a couple of final thoughts. First of all, no one shows up at the funeral. Meyer Wolfshame and his crew don't. Daisy and her crew don't. Although Nick does, at the end, really confront Tom for basically telling Wilson Myrtle was having an affair with Gatsby, and that's what caused the murder. But that's months later, and Tom is self-righteous about it. Gatsby's dad shows up. He found out about his son's death from the newspaper. And when he and Nick talk, Mr. Gat says this about his son. I find this interesting. If he'd have lived, he'd have been a great man. A man like James J. Hill. He'd have helped build up this country. And it respond, Nick responds like this. Nick uncomfortably <laughs> says, that's true. In other words, he lies, mm-hmm. knowing full well that that is not what Gatsby would have done with his wealth. But Cliff Springer calls, and Nick invites him to the funeral, but Cliff Springer only wants a pair of shoes that he left here. Now, that's the guy that had moved in with him. The moocher. Yes, the only person who attends the funeral from all that crew in New York is Al Eyes. And he says a vulgarity. He calls, he says this, the poor son of a bitch. Now, why would he say that? It's a vulgar but slightly religious reference to a person without a father. And remember, he's been called the son of God. It's kind of a corruption of that phrase. What does Old Al Al see. He sees a man, Gatsby, with no roots, nothing to ground him, to keep his perspective in place. He's created himself, but in a shallow soil of this rootless, amoral money. And he loses himself. He wanted a past. He didn't want to be rootless. He wanted a different past. He wanted to rewrite his past, make up his story. He wanted to inject fake roots and make his life something that it wasn't. And he thought it was something he could buy, but it just wasn't. And so Fitzgerald ends his book with this meditation about America Um, It's, again, some of those famous lines in the book that people just quote wondering what they mean. Well, true. And a bit of trivia, the part that you're getting ready to read, the famous ending of the book, really was never written to be the end of the book. It was actually the end of the first chapter. And when Fitzgerald rewrote his book a bajillion times, he repositioned it to be at the end because he did want to kind of make this an American story and not just about Gatsby. It's poetic, so it's worth reading. Most of the big shore places were closed now, and there were hardly any lights except the shadowy moving glow of a ferry boat across the sound. And as the moon rose higher, the inessential houses began to melt away until gradually I became aware of the old island here that flowered once for Dutch sailors' eyes, a fresh green breast of the new world. Its vanished trees, the trees that had made way for Gatsby's house, had once pandered in whispers to the last and greatest of all human dreams. For a transitory, enchanted moment, man must have held his breath in the presence of this continent. Compelled into an aesthetic contemplation, he neither understood nor desired. 
face-to-face for the last time in history with something commensurate to his capacity for wonder. And as I sat there, brooding on the old unknown world, I thought of Gatsby's wonder when he first picked out the green light at the end of Daisy's dock. He had come a long way to this blue lawn, and his dream must have seemed so close that he could hardly fail to grasp it. He did not know that it was already behind him, somewhere back in that vast obscurity beyond the city, where the dark fields of the Republic rolled on under the night. Gatsby believed in a green light, the orgastic future that year by year recedes before us. It eluded us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow, we will run faster, stretch out our arms farther, and one fine morning. So, we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. (laughs) Pretty dramatic ending. Well, dreams are a mixed bag, I guess. You know, they can deceive us. They can inspire us, and well, so... What are we supposed to think about that last paragraph? We beat on boats against the current. That's America. It's what builds nations. We run faster, stretch out our arms. We may run up against currents that beat us back. Our dreams may die. The establishment, the corruption in the system may win. But in the way rootless Americans seek to build a past, build a future, build a dream... We go on toward that green light, however you want to define it. Hmm. I'm not sure I'm supposed to be encouraged or depressed by this. And that's why it's the great American novel. Who even knows? But it is beautiful, and almost everyone loves it. Yes, and I'm really going to miss talking about it. I've enjoyed these episodes. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for hanging in with us to the end. We hope you enjoyed our episode on The Great Gatsby. We always like to remind you to text an episode to a friend, to follow us on all of our social media apparatuses, and to check us out on howtolovelypodcast.com. We've got all kinds of things for you there. Peace out. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.